Okay, good morning again. You're going to have your Bibles open. You're going to need them. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. If you've got one of these Bibles in the pew, it's page 404. Um, And I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Ask the Lord to help us. That's okay. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're so grateful that we can be here this morning. Grateful when so many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are not able to meet, are too scared to meet, uh, Lord, are persecuted for meeting. So just give us clear hearts and minds this morning, we pray, as we sit under the authority of your perfect word. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know what it's like in your house, uh, but in my house, I know the mother-in-law is coming to town because my wife, Miriam, suddenly gets very OCD about cleaning, right? So I don't know if that's just an American, a, 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 a British thing, but everything has to get cleaned when the mother-in-law is coming to town. It drives me nuts. Even I have to have a wash. Uh, I'm... Look, you know what it's like for the sort of yearly visit of the, you know, the Queen Mom. She's so, you know, the house looks like a bombsite most of the year, right? You do your best, but, you know, you just keep going with it. And then over the course of a year, you sort of collect all this clutter, don't you? You don't know where it comes from, but it's all over the place. Uh, and so, Mom-in-law's coming. We've got to look good, right? We don't want mom, Mom-in-law to think we're animals, barely getting by and what do we do with all this clutter we've got this new clutter so what we do is we put it in our special cupboard everybody got a special cupboard right you just ram that junk in there yeah and then you just sort of lean into it to get it closed get it closed hang a little sign on say do not enter so she never discovers it and uh, the point is we want it all to look shiny and nice and clean we want the mom-in-law to think you know wow we're a perfect, perfect family. And uh, uh, the same thing we do with our clutter, we do with our sin. You know, maybe there's some people into, uh, maybe there's some people in our lives that we let in. We let in closely. Maybe we know, uh, we let them know about secret sin or, or secret struggles or weaknesses. But most of the time, as human beings, we want to show people our best side. We want, to th- we want them to think well of us. We want to dress up on Sunday, look smart, look proper, look correct, behave well. And for people to look across at us and think, yeah, look at them. They've got it all together. Look how well they're doing. We, don't, we, we want people to think well about us. We don't want people to know that our marriage is struggling. We don't want people to know that we're struggling with our sexuality. We don't want them to know we're sad, depressed, and lonely. We don't want people to know that sometimes, in our darkest moments, we have crippling doubts about the faith, and it worries us. We don't want people to know we're terrified of dying. We don't want them to know anything Maybe we'll throw the pastor a few tidbits to keep him off the scent. But generally, 
We bury all these things deep inside in the cupboard in our hearts. And what we do is we pray and we hope and we live almost with a subconscious fear that nobody gets too close and nobody looks too deeply because we want people to see the best of us. See, my point is this. We can know people and they can know us, but in reality we can not really know each other at all. We can come to church, we can talk football, and by football I mean soccer, actual football. We can talk relationships, we can uh, talk a whole lot of things at church, but we never get down to business, we never get down to being more than skin deep, and we're sort of used to living like this, Christians, particularly in the Western world. That, that, that when the Bible gets brought out, and when it's opened and taught simply and clearly, it, it sort of rips through us, doesn't it, like a hot knife through butter. The, the preacher starts preaching, all of a sudden, we feel cut to the bone. We, we feel like, has he been spying on me all this week? You know, maybe I need, do I need to put a little sticking plaster over my laptop? But what's happening is simple. What's happening is... God's word is very powerful. God's word gets past all the fluff and pretense of our lives. God's word gets straight to the heart of the matter because we can pretend all we like with one another. We can hide all our secret sins and fears and temptations all we like with one another. We can put on any show we like in front of one another, but we cannot hide anything from the Lord God Almighty. God sees past our anger. God sees past our pretend indifference to the word. God sees past the jokes and the witty one-liners. God sees past the super cool demeanor. God sees past the lies and the deceptions. God sees the real you and me. As we are all gathered here this morning, whatever, whatever, whatever outward show you're putting on, God sees the real you. God sees what nobody else in this room truly sees. And you know something? That is a scary place to be. Because if God sees the real us, then God sees all the bad stuff, doesn't he? God sees the evil thoughts, the murderous thoughts, the gossip, the little lies, the big lies, the pride, the self-righteousness, the arrogance, the judgmentalism, and it's all in this room Like a little melting pot, isn't it? We hide it behind nice clothes and a winning smile. But you better believe it's here. And here's the problem. It has to be dealt with. Because if we don't deal with our sin, then what happens is this. Like that cupboard, it stores up and we store up and we store it up over time. But sooner or later, something's going to give. Sooner or later, something is going to happen. The Bible says, if we take our sins to the grave with us, then we go to hell. But if we're Christians and keep short accounts with God and with one another, then we don't. But we need to do these things. And so my quite long introduction is all to say this simple thing. Every single person alive and all of us in this room this morning need 
spiritual revival. We need a release in our soul from all the muck and the dirt within us. And how do we do that? How do we experience a true spiritual awakening and a deep cleansing of the soul? And I think this chapter is what I like to call cheeky. It's a cheeky chapter, and I think it's going to help us. Now, let me just give you a bit of background. I'm glad sort of Garrett, Garrett gave you some background, and then I thought he was going to steal my sermon with, his, with the big chat. So just, just so you know, I did think of it before he said it. But let me give you a bit of background. Nehemiah was, uh, uh, well, the whole world, as we know it at the time in, in, in Nehemiah's day, was, was full of war, there was persecution everywhere. Whole people groups were being ethnically cleansed, forced out of their homes. Nehemiah himself was a refugee from Jerusalem. His own family had been removed from Jerusalem, forced to move to what we now know as modern-day Iran. And when this book was written, the people of God and the temple of God had, uh, had, had lain ruined for a long time, decimated by the Babylonian Empire. The city of Jerusalem, once the light of the world, was now the laughing stock of the world. The great temple of Solomon, in, beast, in pieces, uh, that which replaced it was never quite the same again. Only the poor and the weak were left behind. And God and his people, who'd once been feared and respected worldwide, were now a laughing stock, pushed to the margins, irrelevant, products of a bygone era in a rapidly developing world. People were laughing at God, scorning the religion. There was a new empire, a new world order, a new way of thinking. And into this sort of melting pot, Uh, comes Ezra and Nehemiah. Just so you understand, Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book. And and 70 years after uh, the people were sort of forcibly removed um, by the Babylonians, a dude called uh, Zerubbabel, he takes a workforce back to Jerusalem. He he, he tries to repair the city. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 1 to 6. 60 years after that, Ezra appears on the scene with a different workforce. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 7 to chapter 10. And during all this time, there's this massive struggle to bring the people together. And into this situation comes Nehemiah to rebuild the walls uh, to protect God's people and the, and the temple. And chapters 1 to 7 in Nehemiah are basically this story, the stories of how Nehemiah gets the job done, faces opposition, faces persecution from within his own people, from enemies without. But, you know, basically... Nehemiah gets the job done in record quick time. And so in chapter 8, Nehemiah gets all the religious people together, all the leaders together to worship the Lord. Look at, just, just turn back to chapter 8, verse 8. I'll have a cheeky read of that. So Ezra reads the law out, and then we read verse 8, chapter 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood it's meaning. So the Bible's opened, the word is taught. Look at the response in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who to all the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. That's how people responded to the opening of God's law after all that time weeping. 
The first step of knowing when a true revival is going on in our hearts is always weeping. It's always a feeling that the word of God has cut across all my pretense, everything about me, and stabbed me deep in the heart. I'm feeling this. That's what's going on in chapter 8, but it doesn't stop there. Because that weeping leads somewhere. They're not just sitting around crying like big babies. Something happens. And that's where we get into chapter 29. Notice the first thing that happens after the weeping. And they have a little cheeky celebration. And they have some weeping. And then the first thing we see is that the people confess their sins. Look at verse 1 and 2 again of, of um, chapter 9. The 24th day of the uh, month of it. Of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. The Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners, stood, confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And again, if you look down in verse 32 through to 38, you see them time after time confessing their sin. So they've had the word preached, they've been convicted, they've been weeping, we've all been there, right? Somebody says something, somebody preaches something, somebody teaches something, it hits home, but by the time we hit these doors and got a first cup of coffee in our hands, it's forgotten, right? It's like the moment passes. So our conviction's a little bit like indigestion, right? But true revival is only true revival when the word is proclaimed, when the word is heard, when the word enters into our soul, and when the word is acted upon. You see, feeling guilty, there are a lot of guilty people out there feeling bad about things in their lives, but feeling guilty does not make you a Christian. Feeling like somebody preached a powerful word doesn't make you a Christian. Liking the church and its membership doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian is somebody who's heard the word of God proclaimed and they've been moved to such a degree that they've put down any pretense of being okay and they openly and freely confess their sin to God. A Christian is somebody who is clear. I am a sinner against you, Lord. Now, I want us to know it's something very specific in this text, and it's important for our generation. It's in verse 2, and we miss it. We don't read it very well, the Bible. Israelites separate themselves. All the foreigners should confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Did you catch that? Verse 34, look at it. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and the warnings you gave them. So the people confess their sins, but they also confess the sins of those who have gone before them. In other words, they weren't running from the law with excuses. And I hear excuses all the time as a pastor. It wasn't my fault, it was my dad's fault. It was how I was brought up. You know, social workers told me growing up, you know, you know, Mez, you're a good boy at heart. I mean, I was an absolute animal. You know, I'll steal anything. I'll rob anyone. I brutalized people to get what I wanted. And this guy would sit there and say to me, no, at heart, you're a decent human being. Your problem is, is the way you were brought up. It was your environment. That's what's caused you to be like that. And then I read the book of Romans, which I'll transliterate, says, no, Mez, You're a little scumbag. 
And you need to take responsibility for your sin and stop blaming everybody else. We've got, we, we, we live in a generation that's got excuses for everything. I can't help it. They don't love me. But he, here's the thing. Here's how we know true revival happens. These people, they hear the word, they take it to heart, and they confess freely. They own their sin. And the problem for many of us is we don't own our sin. In fact, we own everybody else's sin, don't we? We can see the fault in our neighbor clear enough. We can see where he or she needs to get right. We can see where they are going wrong, but we are slow to see the sin in our own lives. But if we want a real, genuine, heartwarming, heartfelt, close relationship with God through Jesus, then we have to get real about our sin. It's the same in in fractured relationships, you know. Married couples warring all the time. Most married couples will sit in front of me, they've got a marriage problem, and they'll go, Mez, tell her, will you, to do this. Tell him to do that. And they've got the advice to fix each other. They'll point each other's faults out, but they won't own their own sin. We need to come with open hands and a truly repentant heart if we want our sins to be forgiven by God. Confess your sin to God. Not to me, not to a priest, not to your best friend. Confess it to God. And here's the promise for you, 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We need to unlock those secret burdens we carry and bring them to the foot of the cross. Hand them over to the Lord. Stop pretending that everything is okay. Stop pretending that you've got life under control. Remember, there is no true spiritual revival without first having full confession of sin. Notice the second thing that happens to these dudes in this text, and it happens in verses 3 and 4. They stood up in their place, read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Joshua and all his friends, and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. They stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law, their Lord, for a fourth of the day and another fourth in confession. So, so, so there's a sort of weird thing happening in this text. On one side, you've got one side of the group are shouting out the sins of the people. And the other side of the group, it's like split the church in half now. So you all sit over there. You shout out all the sins of the people. That would be interesting. And this side over here, you shout back, praise the Lord. That would be an interesting worship service, wouldn't it? And oh, they did this for three hours each. I mean, that's a lot of sin shouting for three hours. They must have come up with some stuff, right? Three hours. You know, I was driving here today, and I forget how sort of rich this place looks compared to, 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 where, I, to where I come from. But listen to me. People around here are lost, aren't they? They've got money, but they're not happy. People want more, don't they? People will cheat and connive. 
If, if we can screw somebody over, then we'll, we will. If we can do the IRS out of a few dollars, then we will. If we can cheat on our wives, we will. Parents wonder why their, 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 their children roaming the streets terrorizing old people, you know, when they buy them the best shoes, the best clothes, the best games consoles. We give them iPhones, but we don't give them Bibles. We don't teach them morals. We don't show them to be responsible citizens. And uh, So what do we do as a church community? I live in a country now, Scotland. Put your hands up if you've been to Scotland. Okay. There's a few. I live in a country now, Scotland, where Christianity, we are fringe religion at best. And you know what? I don't think America's far behind And I ask myself in Scotland, how did it get to this? Scottish Christianity now is nothing more than a history lesson to coach loads of visiting Americans. And what do we do? How do we get there? What are we going to do to turn it around? Well, here's what we're going to need to do. We're going to have to get back into the Word of God. We're going to have to get back to the basics We are going to have to get back and see what God has to say to us in the Word. That, you know, the Bible is more relevant than we think. Here's one thing I know for true, for a fact. We cannot experience true revival in our lives if our Bibles lay closed at home. You can't experience true revival in your life if, in your church if the Bibles lay closed on your lap. If the Bible is not open, then God is not speaking. Don't care what all these fruitcakes say on the God channel. The Bible's not open, the Lord is not speaking. I, I, I was looking at a social media account uh, about, from a spiritual guru this week. A spiritual guru dude is going around Scotland. And his whole chat was, come to my meetings and find out what the Lord has got to say to you. Right? Not one mention of the Bible. I mean, the guy was an absolute fruit bat. Nothing. Nothing on the Bible. Like somehow the Bible made no difference. Like somehow the Bible isn't enough. Like somehow the Bible is too boring, too simple, too obvious. Some of us in this room, there's no shadow of a doubt in my mind. Some of us in this room are struggling spiritually. Some of us in this room are all over the place spiritually. Some of us are getting an absolute whooping by Satan right now. And the reason, more often than not, is because our Bibles lay opened in a drawer somewhere. They just lay closed off underneath, you know, what's on the television magazine. Imagine if you went round to your friend's house, right? You haven't seen them for a while. You get there, and they look terrible. They look ill. They look malnourished. They haven't eaten for ages. I mean, they're starving. I'm starving, they tell you. You can even get off the, 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 the sofa. Is sofa a word? City? Sofa. You're gonna get, they don't get off a chair. Chairs in English. Right? They're just lying there. They're just sitting there. I'm starving. And you're like, okay. I'll go, and get, I'll go and get you some food. 
I mean, you know, my Christian, we'll go in the shops, I'll get you some food. So you, you go in the kitchen, just check the cupboards, what they need, and you open the cupboards, and you find it's full of food. You open the fridge, it's, food's pouring out of the fridge. So what's going on? You go back and say, what's going on? There's food in the cupboards. There's, your fridge is full. What are you starving for? Well, I just can't be bothered to get off this chair. What would you say to them? Well, you'd say that they were stupid, wouldn't you? What sort of idiot sitting in a chair starving with a cupboard full of food and moaning about it? People, claim, people complain to me all the time, Mez, I'm just not feeling it, Mez, anymore. I'm not, just not feeling that sort of close to God. I'm, I'm feeling like you know, temptation's hitting me all the time when I'm, I'm not able to resist temptation. I'm, I'm feeling just spiritually dry and bare-boned, and I'm, and, and I'm feeling low, and I, and I feel like I'm sinking, Mez. And I'm like, well, when's the last time you opened the Bible? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I find it difficult, brother, which is... I finding it difficult, brother, is I haven't read it for six months. Let me give you the code to that. The longer the Bible stays closed in our homes, the spiritually weaker we will become. The spiritually weaker we become, the more the enemy will rip straight through us. We need to get into the Bible. We need to have our Bibles open. We need to be reading, digesting, eating, nourishing. You know, here's, your, here's, here's one thing you ought to know in a country that overeats. You know, got, there's a lot of fat people in this country. Here's the thing. You can never, ever, ever gorge yourself too much on the Bible. Zero calories, baby. <laughs> and yet it feeds you completely. Praise the Lord, right? So what happens when we read the Bible? Well, I'll tell you what happens. We find something to get excited about. Verse 4. All these dudes, end of verse 4, they cry with a loud voice to the Lord their God. They start shouting their heads off. And what are they shouting about? Well, look at the first thing they shout about in, in, in end of verse 5. And verse 6, look what they say. Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all the hosts, the earth, all that is on it, the seas, all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worship you. Amen? You see, a person who's been truly revived by God, a person who has confessed their sin and opened their Bible cannot help. You cannot help but praise God. There's no other option. It's why we sing. It's why we pray. It's why we give. It's why we live. It's why we do everything we can to serve Jesus. We can never praise God enough for his greatness. Amen? I mean, that's worth a cheeky amen. The Lord is great. And, and, and remember who's praying. These are refugees. These are guys who've been beaten, stamped on, crushed, abused for a long, long time. Not guys sat in a nice, comfortable, air-conditioned church with a lovely piano and guitars and nice lights and carpets. These dudes were still in the middle of a mess, praising the Lord for his greatness. People say, I struggle to pray. 
Well, if you, if you struggle to pray, and so do I at times, underline or put a mark in Nehemiah 9, verses 5 to 6. Because you can't go wrong if you struggle to pray there. He made the heavens, the earth, the stars, the sea, you, me, our loved ones, boom. There you go. That'll get your prayer time started, baby. That'll get your heart singing to Jesus. You see, the sinning heart says to the Lord, nah, you don't exist. The sinning heart says we come from apes. The sinning heart says we're products of chance and evolution. The revived heart looks inside and says, I am a rat, but you are great. It's a difference. But what have they got to praise him for? I mean, they're just, they're in trouble all the time. What's God ever done for them? Standing in all these ruins, does it make sense? And then you've got this massive list in verses 7 to 31 of things that they're grateful for. Basically, to sum it up, if you're taking notes, they remember his faithfulness and his compassion despite their constant screw-ups. Basically, that's what's happening right here, baby. They look back and remember all the promises he's kept. Look what he says in verse 7, you chose Abram. Look at verse 8. You kept your promises. You smashed it in the Red Sea, he says in verse 9. I mean, that was a cheeky miracle, right? I mean, that is a mental miracle. Right, forget the Red Sea, he says. Verse 10, they say, you slapped Pharaoh up and down the street in verse 10. You gave us the law, they say, in verse 13. You fed us, he says, in the wilderness, in verse 15. But look at 16. All these things, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. After everything God did for them, the people turn away. Go back to their old ways. Right then, if that's the case, punish them, Lord. Have them. Look at verse 18. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and, and committed other great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them. Still, you showed compassion on them. Look at verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. You gave your spirit to instruct them. And then in verses 22 to 25, they remind one another how they conquered nations. He rescued us, he saved us, he chose great leaders for us, he got us through dangerous situations, he helped us to conquer nations. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who'd warned them. And so he hands them over, he says, in verse 27, into the hands of of their enemies. But look at verse 28. 
But after they, they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven many times. You delivered them according to your mercies. So you think, lesson learned at last. No, dumb. Verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously, did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. And then we have verses 30 to 31. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God protects them. God saves them. God delivers them. God produces the goods for them time and time again, and they turn their back. Nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. Oh, please, Lord, please help us. Please save me. I will never do that sin again. It'll never happen again. Okay, you're forgiven. Bang. Time after time after time after time after time. They're singing about this, by the way. That's what they're singing about. And here's the thing, here's, here's my point, isn't this us? This is what we should do in church. Isn't this us? Reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness and yet time after time after time after time we're faithless. Isn't this us? God loves us. He sends Jesus, he sends Jesus to die for our sins. We ask Jesus to forgive us our sins. We get baptized. We stand in front of the church. We make a declaration. I am going to follow Jesus. I'm going to serve Jesus for the rest of my life. That's it. We promise to be good witnesses, but we lie, don't we? We cheat, don't we? We gossip, don't we? We get angry, don't we? We go back to our old ways, don't we? And we come back to Jesus if we're sensible and we beg forgiveness, what does he do? He grants us forgiveness because he loves us. What do we do? Almost before the prayer is out of our lips, we're back to the darkness. But time and time and time and time again, this is the good news, baby, God forgives God shows compassion on us. He shows mercy to us. The battle of Israel of old is our battle. The God of Israel of old is our gods, the great gods, the kind God, the merciful God, the compassionate God, and we need him. Boy, we need him in our lives. We can pretend, or please don't pretend, Shakespeare's famous line, all the world's a stage, and my little addition is, and the greatest actors go to church. Please don't pretend. Please don't put on a nice show. God knows us. God sees past all this. He knows us. He knows what we need. He knows we need constant, daily love. We need constant, daily revival from the Spirit of God. You know, people think revival is a one-off event we pray for in a prayer meeting. It should be a daily, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour prayer 
that God would keep our hearts warm. We need his help because we're fools. We're constantly falling into sin. We're constantly trying to hide it. But he knows. He loves us. He wants to forgive us. But if we live like it's not happening, if we pretend that it's not happening, if we lie to him, then we're in big trouble. And in the midst of our troubles, we need to keep looking to Jesus. We need, you know, people say in life, if you make mistakes, you should never look back. I disagree. If you make mistakes, you should definitely look back. Keep looking back to 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on that cross for our sins. Don't look back to your mistakes, not to your sins. Look back to God's glorious faithfulness. Look at what we used to be. Look at what we could have been without him in our lives. Look at what he has done for us. Do we do that? Have we done that often enough? Will you do that? Thank him for what he's done for you. Even if you're struggling, even if you're not feeling the presence of the Lord in your life right now, you can still pray, Nehemiah 9, and praise the Lord for who he is. Man, four years ago, wherever it was I was here, this church was half the size it is now. The Lord is blessing your church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Double the trouble, though. Double the sinners in the room. But the Lord is, pray, is blessing it. Here's the thing. You've been here six years, right? Who's been here longer than six years? The faithful warriors. Well, I bet the faithful older warriors, not that the younger ones who've been are less faithful, I understand, but I bet you have seen, or this building has seen, its fair share of wars and controversies over the years. I bet some wars have been fought in this place over all sorts of things. I bet there's been loads of fun, though. I bet there's been lots of laughter. I bet there's been sorrow as you've buried loved ones, brothers and sisters, in the Lord. I bet there's been pain. There's maybe even ministers, for all I know, who shared this pulpit have walked away from the faith. I bet if these walls could talk, they'd tell us much. But here's the point. Yet God has kept you, hasn't he? God has kept your church family. He's growing your family. He's turned it around. I bet there was a time when this place dwindled and dwindled and dwindled and you thought, I wonder if the doors will close. And I don't know about you, but I'm buzzing. That's a good thing when I look out and see you all here today. That's the Lord's favor. That's the Lord's favor on our lives. That's what the people of Nehemiah chapter 9 knew. They weren't singing and pretending to be perfect. They were singing, look, we're not. We're not. But he is. We're screw-ups. But he isn't. If it was up to us, the stupid wall would fall down. But he'll keep it up. And he'll protect us. We have a compassionate God, rich in love, slow to anger. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't give us what our sins deserve. He sees to our attempts at cover-ups. He wants us to get real with him, and then he'll start getting real with us. You want to grow in your Christian life? 
own your sin. Confess it. If you're hiding sin right now, and you think, I'll get away with this. I've got this one covered. I'll just store it away. That's a bad place to be in. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your elders. Talk to a mature Christian you trust. And pray. Pray about it. Do not pretend your life is fine if you're dying inside. If you're struggling, if you're giving in to temptation, let me end with 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. Because the answer is the same for us. We're Christians struggling with sin, struggling in life. If we're non-Christians struggling in sin and struggling with life, the answer is always Jesus, baby. Here's 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. Humble yourself, pray, seek God, turn from your wickedness. The Lord bless you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. You are the Lord's gods. We worship you this morning. We thank you, Lord. We confess our sins freely. We fail you. We fail each other constantly, but we thank you that there is great mercy and forgiveness to be found in Jesus. And we humble ourselves before you yet again as we prepare our hearts for the communion table, Lord. We prepare to celebrate the risen Lord Jesus, seated, ascended, seated right now, even in heaven, praying for us. Pray for any here this morning who do not know you, who are not following Jesus, who are still trying to pretend that life is fine, who are hiding their sins deep inside. Lord, have mercy. And I pray you would visit them by the power of your Spirit. Draw them to the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus and save their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.